0: Hey everyone, this is Gabain. In these series of discussions, I want to talk about the figure of the Angel of the Lord, sometimes called the Angel of God. And I want to defend the traditional Christian interpretation of the Angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate Christ, the Logos of God. But I want to defend it in a constructive sense by developing in an exegetically rigorous way what the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament itself, has to say about this figure and by showing that what the New Testament has to say is exactly in harmony with this portrait. So uh, most of this is prescripted. I'll be adding stuff here and there, uh, and then I make, you know, just attach things to the end and keep going, um, but this is, the, the bulk of it is already written, so, That's that. Uh, Before we get into the main substance of the video, I want to say if you are uh, edified by this content on a regular basis, and if you're in a financially sound position, please do consider becoming a a patron or a YouTube member. It really is the key to my being able to continue to produce these videos on a regular basis, and I want to thank everyone who's done so. It really is so appreciated. Uh, the third tier guarantee is an hour of one-on-one discussion at least uh, per month if you'd like to take advantage of that. So that's over Zoom or the phone or whatever, whatever you'd like to talk about. I'll say something as long as they have something to say, and I can also provide those recordings to those who have those phone conversations if you'd like to review them later. Uh, It also provides select exclusive content uh, now and again, though I do like to keep as much stuff available universally for free as possible, Uh, so please do consider that if you want to support this channel, Uh, but thank you so much just for coming here and viewing, and uh, we're getting close, more people have become patrons, so uh, I'm optimistic about being able to remove ads entirely. So when I get to a certain point, that's what I'll be able to do um, on on the YouTube end. Uh, So all that said, let's get into it. So what I wanna do is I want to identify the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament's theology of the angel of the Lord. I want to do that on its own terms. Uh, we'll only refer now and again to what the New Testament says as kind of a framing device for looking or asking specific questions of what the Old Testament says. But I want to establish what the Hebrew Bible has to say about the office, of function, and identity about the angel of the Lord. Uh, an interesting thread began to develop in my mind when I was reading Richard Balcom's uh, Jesus and the God of Israel, a uh, very interesting series of essays on the inclusion of Jesus as Messiah in the identity of Israel's God. So what Balcom argues in this book is that God is distinguished and identified in Second Temple Judaism by his role as creator and by his role as sovereign. Now, what's interesting about this is that Uh, uh, it kind of interlocks with what the New Testament has to say in uh, very specific ways. And I think, though Balcom really focuses on the Second Temple evidence, I really think that this is firmly grounded in the Old Testament. Now, these two things are connected. He presents them basically as two distinct aspects of God's supreme identity. But the reason that God is supremely sovereign In relation to his creation is because he is the creator that is he is the source of all that exists in the creation and thus he determines the way in which it is going to exist and what distinguishes what we would like to call monotheism from what some people would call polytheism though these are very kind of porous categories, uh, is that God has no peer competitor. Uh, God is not in danger of being overthrown from his throne. God is infinitely serene in the face of rebellion. So this is what we are talking about when we talk about divine impassibility. That's probably better understood or translated as impassivity in that God is always the active party. He is always working his purpose in a positive way through every activity that he permits to occur in the world. So we talk about God's permissive will uh, and those things which God prevents from being realized. You know, The devil would like to do all sorts of things, which he doesn't get to do. And the reason for this is that God only permits those things to be realized, which he can actively realize towards a good end, such that all energy in the cosmos, when all is said and done, will have grown into a perfect good in the final day. And that is God's sovereignty because it is his commitment to realize his purpose in the creation of the world in the first place. Now, the angel of the Lord or the word of the Lord, as he is sometimes called, is an essential figure in the Old Testament because he shares in these roles in these vocations we'll just talk about this as we go forward but one of the interesting things is if you look at genesis 1 verse 2 the spirit of god hovered over the surface of the water and that word for hovered is actually only used a couple times in the whole bible uh and it's only used twice in the pentateuch the first is there in genesis 1 2 second is at the end of the pentateuch showing that it's a unified text produced by a single hand and it is what and it refers to God in his glory cloud, hovering protectively over the people of Israel as a new creation. Now, what this should tell us is that when we hear about the spirit of God identified in Genesis 1-2, the author has a specific structure in mind. It is God as he comes with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, and in the center of that cloud, there is a distinct figure. As we'll see, that distinct figure is the angel of the Lord. Ezekiel looks inside the cloud, and he sees what is inside. There is, a mu- there is a much more specific witness to Christ than many people have really come to understand. Now, what Balcom points out uh, about a, an apocryphal text or a pseudepidical text in the Second Temple Period, the Apocalypse of Abraham, is that the figure Yahoel uh, is a heavenly high priest. And he kind of refers to that in passing. Balcom doesn't like contextualizing New Testament Christology. In terms of mediator figures, uh, I, I kind of take a middle ground here in terms of his debate with Larry Hurtado on that. Um, but uh, uh, this raised an interesting question for me. Why is it that the author of the Apocalypse of Abraham saw Yahoel as the heavenly high priest. Now you should be able to note here that Yahoel, This is a combination of two of the key divine names in the Bible. That is, number one, the Tetragrammaton, YHWH, and the other one is El or Elohim. Now these two names have distinct connotations, and I think the distinct connotations actually uh, accent them in relation to the Father on El Elohim part, uh, El or Elohim's. Uh, name, or in the sun, in Yahweh Vavhe's case. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that going forward, maybe not. Uh, But the key thing is that the author of the Apocalypse of Abraham has combined these two to identify the angel of the Lord, and the reason that he's done so should be clear if you know the Bible, and that's in Exodus 23. God says, of the angel of the Lord, that my name is in him. Now, why does he say that in Exodus 23? Because God's name is that by which he enacts his purpose in the world. God's name discloses his character. It is his qualities. It is the perfection of his goodness. It is because of God's name that he acts in the way that he does. And so when he reveals his sovereignty in relation to Egypt, in relation to Israel, and makes himself knowable... Not just to Israel, but also to the Egyptians, Exodus 7, that they may know me. The Egyptians may know the Lord. There were Egyptians that were saved. They came out of Israel with the the mixed multitude. He does that through his name. He acts in his name and for his name. And when he acts for the exaltation of his name, uh, it is because he wishes to bring the nations into his family. And the integrity of Israel's God as supremely faithful and supremely powerful is essential in the realization of that purpose. You can also see the creative and sovereign role that the name of God plays in the overarching purpose God says uh, the exodus is ordered towards. That my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Well, that name that is revealed to Moses is also said to be a revelation of his goodness. And it is by God's goodness that the world was created through the word. God spoke and the world was shaped, structured, brightened. And he saw that it was good. He saw that it corresponded to the archetype present in his mind, an archetype which was uh, uh, spelled out and sent out to realize a creative purpose in speech. And that is why in Exodus we see that God saw the people of Israel And God knew. That's what we're told. God knows, and in his knowing, that is, in his gathering the situation at hand into his mind, he sees in his mind's eye, as it were, that things are not as they ought to be. That is, they are not in correspondence with the archetype present in the mind. And this might sound like very abstract language, needlessly abstract when we're talking about biblical theology, but I want what I'm trying to accentuate for you is the constant interplay that goes on in the Bible uh, between the, the philosophical uh, grammar in which we know theology and the concrete particulars of biblical theology. Uh, And what the Bible does is it gives us a very concrete picture of God's activity in relation to the world. And what philosophical theology really does is it gives us a lens through which we can view that and its relation to the concrete so that when we walk through the world day by day, we recognize that we are walking through a world in which God's presence is pervasive. And we know that God was present in Trinity. The two things are constantly in engagement with one another. Now, the angel of the Lord is the one in whom God's name is present, and the covenant is that by which God relates to his children. And so, when the angel of the Lord is sent to Israel, it is that angel who mediates and manifests God's acts of redemption and his acts of judgment. In the book of Judges, we read that the angel of the Lord comes and visits Israel to issue a condemnation of uh, judgment upon them. He speaks to Israel, actually quoting the curse that was pronounced on Adam. What is this you have done? The same Hebrew words, if I recall correctly, are used in these two texts. Because in Genesis 2 and 3, it was the voice of the Lord who came in his glory. Uh, They fled from the presence of the Lord because he was coming in the spirit for the day. Walking in the cool of the day is really uh, uh, not a very good translation. I would argue with Meredith Klein that um it's really coming in the spirit for the day that is the day of the lord light shines in the world he examines the world in light of that light and he evaluates good or evil and they fled from the presence of the lord because like sinai it's terrifying when god comes to town but all of this is done in the angel of the lord because god always creates and acts through his name one final note on this uh, on that little point uh, Abraham, when or Abram, when he comes into the land, it says that he made souls in Haran. He made them. Bara is the word that is used. So it's a relatively unusual word, and it's interesting that it occurs in this context. Because what he's doing is he's building an altar. Uh, in, I think it's 12 verse 7 or 10. He builds an altar, and it says he called upon or called out the name of the Lord. Well, how is it that he converted these souls or made new people in Haran? one of whom is Hagar, we meet, and we see that he has 318 fighting men. He's created a new community by the name of the Lord, which he has spoken out on account of God's having revealed himself to Abram. Uh, so that that's relatively hand-gentle, but um, it's just a little cool tidbit, I think. Um, so uh, what I want to do here is uh, pretty thoroughly establish every premise that I make. Um, but in order to do that, uh, I'm... Uh, And also, simply for the sake of saying potentially helpful things about scriptural interpretation, I'm going to follow a number of threads that may be considered tangential when you first hear them. But, uh, except for one, which I'm going to explicitly make note of as an excursus, um, I think that each of these threads that I develop is going to be important when you see them tie together into the main argument about the identity and character of the Angel of the Lord. So. Let's talk about priesthood. One of the main functions of priesthood in Scripture is that of proclaiming and announcing the word of God. Now, a priest is a proxy bridegroom for Israel and also a proxy father for Israel. We see throughout the book of Deuteronomy, Israel is told to instruct the next generation as the father. The head of the household, who is bridegroom and father, is called to instruct his household in the words of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the hierarchy of the church is analogized to Adam in his relation to Eve, because Adam, standing at the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, this is a liturgical setting, allowed the serpent to simply have his way, to simply teach Eve a false teaching. Remember, Eve was not present when God issued his commandment about the tree of knowledge good and evil. Adam was just totally silent. He was with her, we're told. And uh, Adam was also meant to feed his bride, to select the right food and say, this is what is good. And another thing is what is evil. There's a whole theology of conversation that goes together here. When Eve, for example, says, uh, uh, we cannot eat neither shall we touch it because she's right in that. That's the logic of uh, of the sacrificial system. And it's just good advice. If you're not allowed to do something, you shouldn't get needlessly close to it that's basic practical uh, upshot of this uh, in any case uh, the priesthood is a proxy uh, on God's behalf when Paul he says he uh, he works in the priestly service of the gospel of God uh, we're told that he feels a divine jealousy uh, for the church on Christ's behalf that he would present the church as a pure virgin to christ and in the same context he analogizes the church to eve saying he wishes to protect the bride from the wiles of the serpent and all of this rolls together with the word of god because the word is that by which god gives life it's that by which he creates and it's that by which he illumines and perpetuates the existence of that for which he has made all things it is the priests who are formally responsible to study and teach the scriptures so we have in the Old Testament the idea of the Levites as a kind of scribal class. Now the idea of the scribe is so much stuff one could do with this. But you have the priestly class, and then you also have an interesting prophetic class. And we see that prophets in certain cases take on the role of priests in uh In the book of Samuel, for example, the prophet Samuel builds an altar. Uh, Book of Kings, Elijah builds an altar. Now, Elijah does this because the whole point of the context is that the northern kingdom has inhibited Israel's capacity to worship at the place which God chose. And so God makes his name known to the people in his indwelling by the spirit, a prophet. And prophets are also uh, kind of, specially elect and called scribes. We see this Isaiah. Isaiah 8, for example, speaks of him having disciples whom he teaches the word of God. Elijah and Elisha, they form schools of the prophets. And so the interplay between priesthood and and, uh, prophethood is really cool and really interesting. Um, Before the return from Babylon, um, there were weekly sabbatical convocations and they were presided over by Levites. Now, this is a really important thing to say because pretty much everybody just takes for granted that the synagogue is an invention of the post-exilic period. It's just not true. We know it's not true because Leviticus 23 speaks of a weekly convocation and it tells us, with some other passages in the Pentateuch, what Israel was meant to do during that weekly convocation. Now, Acts 15.21 explicitly says that since, uh, since the time of the covenant. Since Moses' time, he has been read in the synagogues. I believe it's, it, it specifies that point. Um, but the norm from ancient generations is the phrase that it uses. And there's this is the way that God set up his covenant. Um, it may be that the construction of buildings associated with this were post-exilic, but even that, I don't really see any reason to believe that that's necessarily the case. Uh, but the point is the president of these congregations were all Levites. Now, sometimes liberal critics will ask, well, why were there Levites spread across the whole land if there was just a central sanctuary? Well, you have to read the text carefully if you want to read the text at all. Uh, It's because it was their duty to instruct the whole children of Israel in the word of God. We see in Deuteronomy 33, for example. Uh, Priests and Levites are also responsible for blowing the trumpet. There we go again. This is the word of God. Go to the book of Revelation. Uh, The son ascends as high priest to the father. He opens a scroll and then it says there's silence in heaven for half an hour. The reason it's half an hour is because it goes on the theme of the hour which is coming on the whole world. So it's a liturgical hour. And the half an hour is a period of silence in relation to the uh, angelic elders who have been playing their harps. So that you can hear what comes next. And it's the trumpet which enacts the content of the book. And you can see uh, that the seven seals actually function as a kind of table of contents for what happens in the rest of the book. And the bowl judgment is the uh, uh, seventh trumpet. It's in the seventh trumpet. And trumpets are that by which God creatively and destructively realizes his will. Trumpets blow in uh, the conquest of Canaan and the city of Jericho falls. Uh, Trumpets are blown, Numbers 10, and it gathers the people together. And when the people are gathered, they're not gathered together in an undifferentiated mass. They are gathered together in a particular order and structure surrounding the tabernacle. Because the glory cloud with myriads and myriads of angels is the archetype for the community of israel as they traverse through the wilderness uh, the scriptures are liturgically read by priests and levites during great feasts now during the old covenant angels are holders of the heavenly priesthood terrestrial or earthly worship is patterned after the heavenly now this is a key principle runs through the whole bible uh, genesis 1 1 and 2 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth but the earth was without form void and dark Okay, so, not the heavens, but the earth. The heavens that are created in the second day. This is is these are the visible heavens in which God places sun, moon, and stars. And the relationship is analogous to the holy place and the holy of holies. So the holy place is just literally holy. It's a substantive um, uh, uh, noun, okay, or adjective rather. Uh, holy and holy of holies. Well, heaven. Heaven of heavens, that's the language that is used. Psalm 104, which poetically celebrates the creation, that is the creation in which we live, according to the organization that we find throughout the six days, and then the Sabbath. It begins with the reference to his ministers who do his will. His ministers who are like flames of fire. So this is the angelic host. We meet them them in Daniel uh, 7 and other texts. They are the holy ones whom God has with him in his glory cloud. These are the angelic hosts, and um, it. this is the archetype for the terrestrial reality, which develops and grows and is molded as time goes on. Heaven is imprinted on earth. Uh, and we're told this explicitly in Hebrews, of course. And Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, which corresponds to the heaven of heavens, the tabernacle and the holy mountain is a paradigm of the whole tripartite creation and that's why you see uh, that uh, 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 the stone cut without hands grows into a mountain which fills the whole earth and indeed in revelation 21 we see dimensions for the city of god or the creation the renewed creation Where heaven and earth dwell together. Those dimensions are compatible with either a cube or with a pyramid. And we know it's a pyramid because there's a river that's flowing downwards. This is the mountain which has filled all things. Now, earthly worship gradually grows closer and closer to heavenly worship as God works and molds Israel into its maturity. The era of the Torah is the era of spiritual childhood, Paul tells us, and they grow uh, more and more uh, into their adulthood. That's why you see in the Davidic period, we have a new liturgical system with, uh, with glory and musical instruments and, uh, the, and psalm singing, which was not there in the tabernacle system. Now, men don't receive priesthood in their own right until the new covenant. When formal authority is transferred from angels to men, as various texts of the Old and New Testaments, especially the epistle to the Hebrews, describe. Uh, we see in various visions of the heavenly council that an integral part of the angelic vocation was communication of God's will to his creatures. Now, this is, of course, what angel means. Now, what we call angels are not always identified by that name. This is kind of a identification of the class of beings as a whole. Uh, but when we realize that what does it mean for the Son to be the Word of God? It means that God's disclosure of himself flows through the second person of the Trinity. Well, what's a very good name for that? The messenger of the Lord. So take Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, God sitting in his council, calls for someone to announce and proclaim his will. And you will notice that the what this does is it itself enacts the purpose which God wills. Isaiah says, why are you sending me to do this? And God said, so that Israel's destruction might be accelerated. Now that might sound harsh, but the reason for it is that evil does bad in the world, but it's evil is always self-destructive because it's not the way the world is wired to be. And so God will accelerate evils becoming more and more evil so that it will self-destruct ahead of schedule so that it will be able to do less damage. That's part of what's going on in the prophetic call of Isaiah. And as we've talked about in other videos, uh, this text actually flows into the New Testament because it comes to its climax in the crucifixion of Jesus where evil self-destructs in the most spectacular sense. So in Isaiah 6, his prophetic calling comes through his inclusion in the heavenly council. Isaiah's prophetic call is a sign of what is going to happen to the whole people of God. Isaiah 4 says a burning cloud will be over the holy mountain. Well, Isaiah is touched with a coal taken from God's altar from the seraphim and seraph means burning and the seraphim are crying out holy 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 is the lord of hosts this is a heavenly liturgy and what is one of isaiah's unique or favorite titles for the god of israel holy one of israel isaiah becomes a kind of seraph himself being touched with the burning coal of god's divine presence this is a eucharistic image um and it's eucharistic uh not just you know as a cute metaphor but I'm sorry if you hear the dog snoring. I really am. Um, it's, it's, it's not just a cute metaphor. You go to Isaiah 25, Isaiah 24 and 25, you find that the very same phrases are used to describe what that is prophesying. And what is it? The uh, feast of God's messianic supper. So there's a reason that there's Eucharistic imagery here. Uh, the, ser- uh, the prophet becomes a seraph. Now, I want you to consider, if you're if you're Orthodox, what this means for us when we sing, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, heaven and earth is full of your glory. We are seraphim. And think about how that makes sense of the earlier language that we've used. Let us who mystically represent the cherubim. Now, if you understand this in the context of the cherubim and seraphim occupying different roles in the uh, heavenly council or the celestial hierarchy, we see that we are being exalted up through these um, hierarchical positions into the only begotten son himself when we receive the Holy Eucharist. Pretty cool thing. You now In Zechariah, we meet an angel who conveys the word of God to the prophet. So uh, he's speaking to Zechariah on behalf of one who is called the angel of the Lord. So there is an angel that speaks to him and then he is speaking on behalf of the angel of the Lord. In the book of Daniel, we meet a number of these heavenly beings. Uh, They descend from the heavenly courtroom, the council. We see that God is seated in judgment there. He's opening books and he is issuing his will by his presence. The river of fire is the same thing as the river of water. They're parallel symbols. Uh, And these angels, they make announcements and communicate to Daniel important information. So there are two named angels in the book of Daniel. uh, And these are the two named angels In the Hebrew Bible. That's Gabriel and Michael. I think these are the two chief counselors. Of God's angelic council. So this. What I'm about to say is is very speculative. So you don't have to roll with it. We see that. uh, In the Bible. A king will have three chief counselors. David has three counselors. Jesus has Peter, James, and John. I think it's possible to see. uh, The. uh, Role of Angels in relation to the angel of the Lord prior to uh, the exaltation of mankind. Because remember, God first set angels over the world and he always planned to exalt human beings uh they were for a little while lower than the angels and now we are crowned with glory and honor i think it's possible to see uh the pre-fallen devil as occupying the third slot here that's that's very speculative so you don't have to roll with that at all um i just think it's an interesting interesting image and notice also michael and gabriel on either side of our iconostas the deacon doors i think it's it's pretty cool the way that this flows into our liturgy uh so in terms of the diad of priestly and kingly roles, so priesthood and kingship are two um, uh, important offices, and they're two stages of development in... Uh, the development of creation, so purification and illumination, or preparation and illumination, one might say. We see Gabriel, it can be associated with the priestly. Uh, He mediates and announces the word of God, and Michael is the kingly. He's the angel of the Lord's chief general, and conquest is a royal task. That's why Joseph and Joshua, they both died 110 years old. Joshua's from Joseph's tribe. They're parallel figures, Uh, but whereas Joseph extends his dominion by the preached word of god joshua does so by conquest and he does so under the leadership of the captain of the lord's host in joshua 5 now i think that this is the angel of the lord i don't think that's actually um entirely contrary to understanding Michael's presence here. That's a totally different subject. And I'm not saying Michael is the angel of the Lord. uh, But I think exegetically speaking, there's a reason that this text is often associated with Michael. But I think that the figure being identified is Jesus, the angel of the Lord. Uh, The book of Psalms also describes angels as ministers who do his word. And the word angel itself, as we mentioned, means messenger. So when God speaks, it sounds like a clap of thunder. Uh, when God continues to speak, it sounds like an intensely loud buzzing of millions of angelic wings. This is the speed of the operation, which is flowing through all of his partners in his communion. This is described in various theophanies of the Old Testament. God speaks, and every word that he speaks, and all of their diversity and their unity is embodied by a particular uh, a hypostasis, a particular angel uh, who captures that distinct characteristic, the vast hosts of the angels. They capture the innumerable splendor of God's thought, you might say. Every one of us has a guardian angel. Every one of us captures something distinct. Every one of us has a name which no one else possesses. And that name is taught first to our guardian angel. So it's in this light that we can really understand what's going on when we hear about the angel of the Lord who is described throughout the Hebrew Bible. Uh, The figure is described in such similar terms in so many texts that we have to conclude that he's a specific character. We are meant to understand him in a consistent way. Now, of course, biblical critics, being being who they are, will have posited... uh, uh, an explanation for this in terms of the blessed redactor, but this just isn't going to do. It doesn't make sense of the text, it's ad hoc, and it leads you to really screen out a lot of the amazing details that we can find here. When we are, If you wanna be serious people here, we gotta take the text as it is, and we're gonna find that being serious people in relation to the text, all due respect, uh, gives us serious information. Uh, okay, so, uh, We'll continue this uh, uh, very soon. As I've said, it's already pre written. Um, I'm sorry about the dog snoring. Uh, (laughs) I really, if anyone knows a program that I can use to screen that out, that would be great. Um, But uh, I will see you soon.